the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You must not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed unto a day of redemption. All bitterness and rage and anger and clamor and slander must be put away from you and every hatefulness. You must be kind to one another, tender-hearted, freely favoring each other as also God by Christ favored you. Accordingly, you must be imitators of God as beloved children. In fact, you must walk in love as Christ also loved us and delighted or delivered himself in our behalf, an offering and sacrifice to God 
there's a fragrant aroma. We're called to love one another. I've seen year after year when anger and bitterness begin to enter into the heart. The Holy Spirit is grieved and he withdraws. We're sharing a story with you of incredible love. As we said yesterday, there is on one side piety, righteousness, earnestly desiring to do that which is right in the eyes of God. And on the other side is the earnest desire to spend ourselves for the lost, for the dying, for those who do not know Jesus Christ, who walk in sin, who claim they know Jesus, but walk in absolute sin. So our life has to be twofold, putting away all bitterness and anger, walking righteous before God by the power of the blood of Jesus. And secondly, a life spent loving those who do not know Jesus Christ or those who say they know Jesus but they still walk in the wickedness of this world. It's piety and service. It's righteousness and self-sacrifice. That's the call of Jesus on the life of every person to be a fisher of men. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, with me in studio. I'm Alexandra Greenlee, and we're from the National Prayer Chapel. Thank we, you for joining us today. We welcome you today. We're glad you're with us. We're sharing an incredible story, and the reason we're sharing it, I can hear some of you biting at me. Why aren't you teaching scripture, Pastor? Well, because you've been taught scripture all your life. Some of you need to see another side. Self-sacrifice. One man called me last night in an emergency. I'm walking clean with Jesus, Pastor. I'm doing everything I know to be right. Because he wants God to bless him. But no concern for the lost. When I start to speak with him about that, it's like I'm talking a strange language. It's all about what he wants, what he expects from God. Won't work that way. So the story we're beginning to tell you, Chasing the Dragon, it's a story of absolute righteousness on one side and pouring oneself out on the other to be a fisher of men and women to fulfill the great commission of our Lord Jesus. Yes, so we began yesterday. The book is titled Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. Her ministry is still continuing today in Hong Kong, Thailand, the Philippines, as well as other countries. It's called St. Stephen Society. So yesterday, if you missed it, you can go online to our webpage and listen to it. It's nationalprayerchapel.com. Yesterday was a bit of an intro with a 
young man in a gang leaped in front of another young man in his gang to save his life as he was being attacked. And neither of them were Christians. And Jackie was called to pray for this man in the hospital, and he recovered miraculously within five days after having his arm nearly chopped off. And yet it wasn't until several years later that he finally was willing to humble himself and say, I really do need Jesus, and at that point he was converted. So today we're going to share a bit about Jackie's early life, how she grew up, how she was converted, how she was called by God to the mission field, and specifically to Hong Kong, and how she made it to Hong Kong. Now, part of the excitement for both of us in this is that this is a modern-day book of Acts. This is not ancient history. This is current it's happening today in the Philippines, in Malaysia, in Hong Kong. It's happening in many different places. It needs to be happening in Washington, D.C. It needs to be happening in San Francisco, in West Virginia, where there's a huge number of drug addicts totally giving up hope. So we'll share the story. Immigration control boarded the ship. I stood first in the line, longing to disembark and get on with my adventure. Earlier that morning I had dressed, once again locked my bags ready for disembarkation, and gone up on deck. The sight took my breath away. All the places we had passed by earlier on the voyage seemed so flat by comparison. Here was perspective. Here were mountains shimmering and fading into the mist in an oriental painting. I found myself filled with peace, and as I recognized that this was the place God had chosen, I said, Thank you. So now I stood, waiting and looking across the South China Sea at the Pearl of the Orient, Hong Kong. Around us was the harbor separating Victoria Island and the Kowloon Peninsula. It was thronged with small crafts, little fishing sampans bobbing up and down as they were sculled with peculiar skill by slant-eyed girls, lighters happily painted in red, blue, yellow, and green, hurrying to unload the freight ships anchored in the channel, and the Walla Wallas offloading their crew. Ferry boats moved between outlying islands carrying shift workers and crowding the waterfronts were the ancient junks bringing food to the colony from mainland China. They looked oddly old-fashioned, for behind them, along the shoreline, rose row upon row of magnificent modern skyscrapers clinging to the sides of the mountain on Hong Kong Island, right up to the peak where they disappeared into ethereal clouds. Close at hand, behind the dockyards and their warehouses, strangely named go-downs, I saw glimpses of Chinese streets, their signs displayed in large characters hanging horizontally from the buildings. They looked quaint, exciting, hinting of the exotic east acclaimed by tourist guides. As I lifted my eyes, I saw more mountains behind them in the distance on the Kowloon side, 
These were the hills of the nine dragons in the new territories that stretched away to the border with Mao's China, a mere 20 miles away. Hong Kong, from the water on a sunny morning, looked beautiful, but it was a facade. I'll just add here, she arrived in Hong Kong right at the beginning of Mao's Cultural Revolution, and that just increased the flood of refugees coming from China into Hong Kong, and many of them would go into the walled city where she would be ministering. The immigration officer did not echo my eagerness. He took from me my completed forms, which stated that I was entering the colony to work, and settled down to question my replies. They did not make him happy. Where you live? I don't actually have anywhere to live yet. Where are your friends? I haven't got any of those here yet. Where you work? Well, no, I don't have a job either. The young Cantonese looked at me darkly. His Hong Kong English had managed the interrogation fine so far, but my answers were not according to the book. He must have thought I looked a bit pathetic, so he tried some supplementary questions. Where's your mother? He was quite kind now. She's in England. Where your return ticket? Oh, I haven't got one of those. I said this quite blithely. Having a one-way ticket had not worried me, and I could not see why he was so concerned. Finally, he brightened. We were in a place where one commodity usually solves most problems. How much money you got? I felt quite pleased as I considered myself rather well off. By dint of limiting my soft drinks on the month's journey out, I had arrived with almost what I had boarded the ship with. About 100 Hong Kong dollars, I said proudly. Not enough, the man snapped. Hong Kong very expensive place. That money not enough three days. And he bustled off importantly in his fine peaked cap and starched shorts to find his superior. They consulted a moment and then came back at me in officialdom. Even though you British, said the chief, we refuse you permission to leave the ship. Wait here. I gathered that they thought I was a prostitute looking for easy earnings from United States troops on rest and recreation trips from Vietnam. With no means of support, no home, no friends, no nothing, I was left to watch all the other passengers land, wondering what they were going to do with me. Into my mind flashed horrible visions of their locking me up in the ship's hold and sending me back to England in disgrace. I would have to meet all my friends who would say, Told you so. Fancy setting off around the world and leaving all the plans to God very irresponsible. What was I going to do? How had I landed here in the first place? My mother had only been expecting one of us and when as an end of war bonus she gave birth to twins, my father was granted 48 hours compensation leave. It must have been a disappointment for him hoping for a rugby team and ending up with four girls instead. I loved climbing and running boys' toys and bicycles, and later I developed a passionate interest in Ruger and Scram halves. 
What's that? I think that is similar to rugby, and that's scrum. Scrum. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One of my first memories is from when I was four. I was leaning against the radiator in our home in Sutton, outside London, thinking, it really, is it really worth being good? I knew there was a choice, but I wondered if I if it paid to be good. So I went on sitting on the radiator. It made a lovely hollow noise when you banged it. And thinking I, I ended up deciding that whatever I did was bound to be found out by someone someday. There would be a reckoning. About a year later, my cousin Gilly and I were sitting in Sunday school when a proper missionary came to talk to us. She was dressed up like the pictures of missionaries in Victorian children's books, complete with long dark skirt, hair pulled back in a bun. Pointing at each one of us sitting on our baby chairs, she fluted, And could God want you on the mission field? I remember thinking the answer to that question could not be no, because, of course, God wanted everyone on the mission field. What exactly a mission field was, I had no idea. I had a dim picture of myself sitting at the door of a mud hut, sort of a white queen in Africa, feeling worthy. There were people like that in missionary booklets that I had seen. I later told a friend at one of our little junior school that I wanted to be a missionary. It was a disastrous mistake. I soon found that everyone expected me to be better than everyone else. But I thought you were going to be a missionary, they would say accusingly when I was naughty. I always felt this was cheating somehow. It did not seem quite fair. So I learned very early that in England it is better to keep quiet about such things. So I invented a series of careers to throw people off the scent. A conductor. The first woman to climb Everest. A circus performer. But occasionally I was found out. Once when a school's friend mother gushed, So you're the one who's going to be a missionary, aren't you? I went very pink and hoped that no one would mention it again. However, privately, some things still bothered me. One day, my twin sister, Gilly, and I were walking over the railroad bridge on our way back from a meeting, Nellie, from meeting Nellie, our friend, and the family daily help. As usual, we had scrounged lime green penny lo lollies off her, but I'd hardly gotten past the bit where it stuck to your tongue when an awful thought appeared. What are we doing on the earth? What is this life all about? It seemed to me that I was trapped. I could not just live how I pleased because it was possible that God was there after all and that one day I would have to explain everything I'd done to him. That was not a happy thought. Then there was the problem of sin. I'd seen the school registrar and, and the mark of the students that they got against their name every day. Lying on the tennis lawn, I looked up at the sky 
and imagined God was up there with a big book. It had all of our names in it, and every time you did something wrong, you got a mark. I had a look at my column. It was terribly long. I think it went on for pages. Well, there was nothing to be done because there was a song in Sunday school about being stuck with your sins. It went, God has blotted them out. I'm happy and glad and free. God has blotted them out. Let's turn to Isaiah and see. Now, I didn't understand blotting out, so it wasn't until years later that I knew that we were singing the truth. I thought of the big book with all my sins stretching for lines and lines, and God with a piece of blotting paper carefully blotting them in. At last a solution occurred to me. Because youth was in my favor, I decided if I never do anything wrong again, ever, ever, perhaps one day I will catch up to Winston Churchill. He is the goodest person on the earth, but he's very old. So if I stop sinning now, maybe we will end up about equal. I made another mistake during my first term at boarding school. My twin and I were sitting at the end of the table eating the compulsory piece of brown bread for tea. The head of our table was a tall girl. She told me off for not cutting my bread in half before eating it. I thought I would try to atone for the brown bread by making polite conversation, but unfortunately I chose the wrong topic. Having heard the first Billy Graham broadcast a short time previously, I mentioned how impressed I'd been with the evangelist. Mass emotion, she said disdainfully and dismissed the subject. I was in such awe of the seniors that ever after, when such matters cropped up in school, I would sneer, mass emotion. Confirmation came around, and it was our grade's turn to be done. I was rather serious about all of this, feeling that I was one of the few who really believed in God. The others were only doing it for the dresses and the confirmation tea to which we could invite relatives and godparents. My real fear was that the vicar would ask us individually what we believed before we could get through. But I need not have worried. He never did, so that it was all right. But I had to ask him a question first. What should I think about when the bishop puts his hands upon my head? The vicar thought for a moment. Ah, I should... er... Pray, he concluded triumphantly. Gilly and I walked forward in our school-issued white dresses and knelt down. The bishop laid hands on us. I can only remember walking back to my seat filled with joy. Actually, I felt like laughing, like splitting my sides. How improper. This was a confirmation service, and this was a solemn one. Laughing was for the tea afterward. I found my service sheet and covered up my face so that no one would see me smiling in the pew and then quickly put my head down in an attitude of prayer. I had hoped to carry off the ceremony looking reverent and graceful. There did not seem to be any connection between the service 
in this unseemingly gladness, I was giving my life to God. I had expected nothing back. My next move was to find the classified phone directory, look up missionary societies, take the address of the first one, and write them a letter. I'm thinking of becoming a missionary, I wrote, and I think I should start preparing now. What subject should I take? They responded by joining me to their postal youth fellowship. It was lovely getting extra mail at boarding school breakfast, but I had to make sure I leaned across the label on the brown envelopes so that no one would find out where my letters came from. I worked during the holidays in my father's factory, gave coaching lessons, or delivered letters for the post office at Christmas. For several years, I held the unofficial title of our number one post girl of the year, and I was even elected Miss Croydon South, 1960. My princely wage was U.S. 24 cents per hour, plus luncheon vouchers. These I exchanged at the post office canteen for cigarettes. I was a woman of the world. I later moved on to the Royal College of Music, where I discovered very quickly that musicians regard love as the food of music, and I had a hard time eluding a persistent horn player. I did have a great predilection for the brass section, however, and I spent an unfortunate amount of my time trailing them around from the pub to rehearsal to the concert to the pub. I sat on their instrument cases in the train and did very little practice on my piano or oboe. From time to time, I passed the Christian Union notice board and got a twinge of conscience, but those Christians looked wet, pimply, and feeble, and were mostly organists, anyway, not my scene at all. They sat in a holy huddle by themselves in the cafeteria and looked unattractive, like those awful people who came up to me and asked if I was saved or washed in the blood. I did not know what they were talking about and did not want to either. They looked grim, no makeup, and wore felt hats. Although they assured me I would change once I knew Jesus, I certainly did not want to change into one of them. Instead, I went to a series of parties where the chosen forms of recreation were either sordid or boring. Well, what did you come for, then? The men flung this at me when I declined the alternatives. I always went, hoping to meet the man of my dreams, and it was a long time before I realized that he was not likely to be at such parties. I was sitting drably on my commuter train, dragging back home from college one day, when I met two old school friends. They took one look at me and invited me to a London flat for coffee with a fabulous man who talked about the Bible. So I went. He was fabulous, but so was everyone there. I could not get over it. They looked quite normal like me. The girls were wearing makeup and one of them was talking about bikinis. The men were discussing car racing and yet all of them were there because they wanted to study the Bible. It was the first time in my life that my toes did not curl up when someone talked to me about Jesus. I could discuss God easily in that flat. I was upset to hear, though, about heaven and hell, 
which I had thrown out with mass emotionalism years before. But more disturbing was hearing that no one could get to God except through Jesus. The words themselves were not as much of a, sh of a shock as my discovery that it was Jesus who said them. I was constrained either to accept what Jesus said about himself or to forget about the Christian faith. Among my social set, the worst sin was to be narrow, but Jesus' words offered no compromise. Reluctantly, I told Jesus I would believe what he had said, although I did not like it much. I was converted. My life became fuller than I had believed possible. I had not entered a narrow life after all. Shortly after, a man on my suburban line leaned across the carriage and asked if I believed in God. No, I replied. I know him. It's different. I know peace. I know where I'm going. My new life also brought difficulty. After one particular Bible study, the girls sat praying, thanking God for their certainty of going to heaven. I opened my eyes and peeped at them. They were all smiling and genuinely happy. I was appalled, for if we believed that we were going to heaven because of Jesus, surely the converse was true also, that some people would not be going. The girls sat down to eat risotto, but I dashed out, thinking, How can you just sit there, believing what you do? What about the people who haven't heard? Risotto? This resulted in my taking part in the kind of scene that I would have despised before my conversion. I found myself playing the piano for a youth squash evangelical tea party in Wadden. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I should have been at the Rugger International, that's a sports game, yelling shove with the best of them. Instead, I was singing salvation songs and eating sausage sizzles in Wadden. It was then that I was sure my life had really taken a new direction. Having gained my degree, I was enjoying a career teaching music. I wanted to give my whole life somewhere. I was free. Since I was not especially in love at the time, there was nothing to stop me from giving all my time in one place. The missionary idea came back. So I wrote to Africa, that's where missionaries go, to schools, societies, and broadcasting companies. And they all wrote back, no, they did not want me. One group explained, if you could teach English and math, then we could find a place for you. But we can't afford musicians out here yet, maybe in a few years. Undeterred, I sought the best advice about going. My idea was to get hold of the visiting speaker, or the good-looking curate, after a meeting and ask for a private audience. What do you think I should do with my life? I asked earnestly of each one. Have you prayed about it? They always replied. It was maddening, because I had prayed about it, but God did not give me a clear answer. My Bible told me to trust, and he would lead me. I used to dash down to fetch the mail in the mornings, thinking guidance would come that way, but the replies were always negative. One night, I had a dream in which the family were all crowding around the dining room table looking at a map of Africa. In the middle of the different colored countries was a pink one. 
I leaned over to see what it was called. It said, Hong Kong. I did not really believe this, but I did not want to show my ignorance. Ah, uh, I tried to sound nonchalant. I never knew Hong Kong was there. Yes, of course it is, didn't you know? Said my Aunt Dottie in a superior tone, and I did not dare argue. When I woke up, I wrote to the Hong Kong government, explaining that I was a qualified musician and that I would like a teaching post. They wrote back saying that applications accompanied by three named references had to be handled through the Ministry of Overseas Development, and that they had no jobs for musicians. Then I tried my old missionary society, stating that I wanted to go to Hong Kong. Impossible, they said. They did not accept would-be missionaries until the age of 25. So I would have to wait. But I think Jesus might come back before I'm 25, I said. Couldn't I go sooner? I don't mind not being called a missionary. Can I teach in one of your schools? They said there was no way. I seemed to have misinterpreted my dream. I went to pray in a tiny, peaceful village church. There I saw a vision of a woman holding out her arms beseechingly as on a refugee poster. I wondered what she wanted. She looked desperate for something. Was it Christian aid? Then words moved past like a television credit. What can you give us? What did I honestly think I could give her? If I was going to be a missionary, what was I going to give anyone? Was it my ability to play the piano and oboe? Was I to pass on the benefit of my nice English background or my education? Was I to be a channel for food or money or clothing? If I only gave her those things, then when I went away, she would be hungry again. But the woman in the picture had been hungry for food, for a food that she did not know about. Then it came to me what she needed was the love of Jesus. If she received that, then when I left her, she would still be full and even better, she would be able to share it with other people. I now knew what I had to do, but I still did not know where I was supposed to do it. Not long afterward, I met a factory worker from West, West Croydon who had been with us on the sausage sizzle mission. You got any answers yet? He knew I was praying about the future. No, I said apologetically. You want to come to our meeting? He said, nodding his head knowingly. We always get answers in ours. What kind of monopoly on God did he think he had in West Croydon? I was furious, but I was also intrigued to know what was going on at his meeting. So one Tuesday night, I took the bus over. When I arrived, someone told me confidentially not to be surprised if anything odd happened. Nervously, I sat myself near the door. Apparently, they were going to use spiritual gifts at their meeting, and I wanted to be in a good position to get away if necessary. I was not sure what to expect, and I thought maybe someone would prophesy in a loud voice, You'll meet a man who will give you a ticket for such and such a country on such and such a date. And that would be God's way of answering me. The meeting, however, was orderly and calm with normal prayers and songs. One or two people who were present did speak in a strange language that I did not understand, and others explained what they meant. 
but there was no booming voice from God talking to me. Then it came. It was not a great booming voice at all. Someone was speaking quite quietly, and I was completely sure that it was meant for me. Go, trust me, and I will lead you. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you shall go. I will guide you with my eye. There it was, what God had been saying all along, but now it was underlined. I was sure that God had my life in hand and that he was about to lead me somewhere. There was no doubt that West Croydon got answers, but they did not tell me how I could receive spiritual gifts myself. I went home to wait. God had quite clearly promised to guide me, but I still did not know where to go. I gave in my notice for all my jobs so that I would be free to leave after the summer term, and I tried to pray by my bedside a bit more. Still no answers. During the Easter holidays, I went to help in Richard Thompson's Shoreditch Parish for a week. As a minister, he had known me for some time, and I felt as though he was in a position to give counsel. I well remember the carpet in his study, for I spent a good time staring at it before finding the courage to speak. Then I told him that God and I had reached a stalemate. He had told me clearly to go. I knew why I was to go, but he would not tell me where. So how could I go? Richard's reply was extraordinary. If God is telling you to go, you had better go. How can I? I don't know where to go. All my applications have been rejected. Well, if you've tried all the conventional ways and missionary societies and God still is telling you to go, you had better get on the move. I felt frustrated. If you had a job, a ticket, accommodation, a sick fund, and a pension, you wouldn't need to trust God, Richard continued. Anyone can go that way, whether they are Christians or not. If I were you, I would go out and buy a ticket for a boat going on the longest journey you can find and pray to know where to get off. I did not exactly hear bells, but this was the first time in all those months of searching that anything made sense. It sounds terrific, but it must be cheating because I'd love to do that. I still had the idea that anything to do with God had to be serious. I was sure that Christians always had to take the hard way, and that enjoyment was no part of suffering for their faith. But Richard Thompson told me that it was quite scriptural. Abraham was willing to leave his country and follow Jehovah to a promised land without knowing where he was going, because he trusted. In the same way, thousands of years later, Gladys Isleward journeyed in faith to China. You can't lose if you put yourself completely in God's hands, you know. Richard was quite serious. If he doesn't want you to get on the ship, he is quite able to stop you, or to make the ship go anywhere in the world. I had visions of being storm-driven like St. Paul. I might land on a little desert island where one person wanted to hear about Jesus. It was an exciting proposition. Maybe you will go all the way around the world just to talk to one sailor about Christ. Or maybe you will go as far as Singapore to play the piano for a week of youth meetings and then come back. 
Richard's advice was extraordinary, but completely wise. Never at any time did he lead me to the impression that I was to get on a ship, grow a bun, and get off as a missionary ready to do a work. He never suggested that I had to achieve anything at all. I simply had to follow wherever God led. I, too, felt that I could not lose on this adventure. So I went out, and after counting up my money, found the cheapest ship on the longest route, passing through the most countries on its way. It went from France to Japan. I bought a ticket, and all was set. Of course, there were my parents and friends and others to deal with. Understandably, some were skeptical. My father very rightly insisted that I think long and carefully of my slow boat to China. What right had I to give my religion to people in other countries when they had a perfectly good religions of their own? Each parent was content about my trip but worried about the other. So I prayed and one evening I heard them convincing each other that it was all right. The telephone book Missionary Society was less keen. Very irresponsible advice for a vicar to give a young girl, they cautioned. And I suppose it would have been had it not been the Holy Spirit who gave Richard Thompson the words. The day I left was one of those days when everything goes wrong. The taxi ordered to drive us the 20 miles to London appeared an hour late and then got stuck in a traffic jam on Vexhall Bridge. I remember my mother frantically chewing white stomach pills, gasping. I settled into the boat train carriage with my nightmare of luggage and one minute to spare. Richard Thompson came running up the platform shouting, Praise the Lord! in a very un-English fashion and the train pulled out. The immigration officer turned back to me in annoyance. For a moment I was afraid that I'd come all this way to Asia merely to be repatriated. Then I remembered that morning's readings. Behold, your name is written on the palms of God's hands. If my name was written there, then God knew all about me. So perhaps the whole purpose of the journey was that I should get arrested in Hong Kong and locked up in the ship's hold, and then I could convert the jailer. I couldn't lose. Wait a minute, I said, suddenly remembering my mother's godson. I do know someone here. He's a policeman. The effect was dramatic. The police were highly regarded back in 1966, and anyone who knew a policeman was ranked higher than mere immigration officials were clearly okay. On their faces I read, All this bother for a stupid girl who is well-connected all along? They thrust my passport at me, muttering angrily, that I could 
land on condition that I search for work immediately. As far as they were concerned, my money would not last three days in Hong Kong. This is how she arrived in Hong Kong. We're reading for you the story Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. She is still in Hong Kong. She's been ministering there now for, what, 50-some years? A little over 50 years. And the story is so fabulous. It is the story of Acts all over again. But Alexandra, as I heard it again today, this is what every Christian needs to honestly face. What does God want of me? Of course, there is the Gospel Commission. Go and make disciples of all of the world, all of the nations. Baptizing them in the name of Jesus. Teaching them to obey everything that Jesus taught us. But how do we begin to go about doing that? And, and Jackie did one thing that is so profound and so powerful and so necessary. Utterly giving herself to God and saying, God... You do with me whatever you want to do with me. My life belongs to you. Now, you've done that, haven't you, Alexandra? Yes, that's how I ended up here. That's how you ended up at the National Prayer Chapel. It's also how you ended up being my wife. And now here we are, both of us utterly given to the Lord. And the Lord said to me audibly, wait upon the Lord. A pause, and then he said, the Lord will carry you through. A pause, and then very tenderly, very quietly, he said, rest in me, Ray. That was the first time I'd ever heard God use my first name. Rest in me, Ray. Well, I'm not a resting kind of man. And I'm not a waiting kind of man. I'm a go-go man. I'm ready for action. I want, I want to move forward with power. And God said, wait. So here we are. We're doing the radio broadcast because the Lord told us to do that. We're not on salary. Our life and this radio cost a lot of money. We don't have any, except what God gives to us. Somebody said, you must have a lot of money stashed away, Pastor. You're paying rent on a house, and you're not getting a job. You're waiting on God, and God's carrying you? Really? Yes. In the most miraculous kinds of ways, as he moves in people's hearts. We're waiting on God. We don't know what the next step is. We just know that his promise was revival in Washington. We know that his promise was baptism in Pentecost power in the Holy Spirit. So while we wait on him, we're reading our Bibles. We're praying. We're trusting him. And he's carrying us.
Anything you want to add to that? Jackie, on the other hand, she was hearing very clearly from God that she was to go, and she did not ha know how to do that. And it wasn't until after she arrived in China that she received the power necessary to do the work God had called her to do there. So don't... S say more about that. We'll read more about it this week. <laughs> okay. But what I'm trying to get at is don't just take our example or Jackie's example as the one and only way God works. No. So there's many ways that God has of speaking to us. Sometimes he will speak to us in a dream. He may speak to you in a voice. But often he speaks to us by giving us such a conviction that we have to do something that we feel like we'll go crazy if we don't do it. Or he'll speak to us by as we read the scripture, something just pops out and you say, I know I have to do that. God has many ways of speaking to us, but the important thing is that we act on what he gives us. I love, we see this in what we shared today. She had this dream of going to Hong Kong and she wakes up and the first thing she does is she starts writing to missionary societies in Hong Kong. She didn't say, well, let me think about if that was really God or not. She acted on it. And you'll see that as we read the entire book, wherever there's a prophecy, wherever there's a dream, tongues with interpretation that shows an action, they immediately take it. And so that's key to our walking with Jesus is that we, when we have the feeling, we have the unction, we have the command of God, that we act on it immediately. So in this story, uh, inside of Hong Kong was this infamous walled city. Strangers were not welcome there. Police even hesitated to enter. It was a haven of filth and crime and sin, prostitution, pornography, drug addiction. Every wicked thing was in that, that inner sanctum of the walled city. And Jackie grew up believing that if she put her trust in God, he would lead her. So when she's 20 years old, God calls her to go. She obeys. And as she spoke of Jesus Christ in the walled city, brutal criminals were converted. Prostitutes retired from their trade. Heroin junkies found new power by the Holy Spirit that freed them from the bondage of drug addiction without any withdrawal symptoms. So God has called us, Alexandra, to wait on him to do this broadcast. And he's promised us revival in Washington. But we don't have a clue how he's going to do that. So we're waiting on him. Don't wait if God has not called you to wait. And don't go if God has not called you to go. Don't, don't just rush off and say, Oh, I'm going to do this in my strength and my power because you cannot do the work of God in your strength and your power. We see this nation filled with churches where men and women have built in their own flesh what they call the church. But it has no power 
to change this nation. We're going to wait on God. Now, you're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, and with me is Alexandra, my precious wife. We're waiting on God. And we want to thank each of you who give so generously to help sustain us in the waiting time by covering the cost of radio. Thank you. You can write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also visit our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. That's nationalprayerchapel.com. You can listen to this message again as well as past messages. You could send a donation. You could contact us through the webpage. We're eager to hear from you. And you can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at National Prayer Chapel. And we've gotten several letters in the last week that have been so encouraging to our hearts, telling us, remain faithful, walk this out. God is using you. You are building hope in our hearts. We praise God for this testimony. Thank you. Thank you. We'd like to hear from you. The National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. And invite a friend to join and listen to this story. This story is awesome. Go to our webpage and you'll see how you can get the book Chasing the Dragon by Jackie Pullinger. I know you'll enjoy it. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. of his glory with great joy with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ Three-star general Michael J. Flynn head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal flynn told the truth he was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com